This message was originally given at Covenant Baptist Church in Valdosta, Georgia. Let's listen to the Word of God from our Sunday morning service. Thank you, Tommy. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. I want to express my appreciation to Tommy and the planning that he does for our time of worship. We have, if you notice, we have sung songs, read scripture, things all surrounding the themes of Christ's atonement, his paying the penalty uh, for our sins, and learning how to trust the Lord not only in our salvation, but even in times of distress. These are all things that we've sung about. We've read Scripture together, as well as heard the reading of Scripture, all of these types of themes. And of course, I appreciate that because all of those things are meant to reinforce reinforce the centerpiece of Christian worship, which is the preaching of the Word of God the hearing of the Word of God, the the proclamation of truth. And so, all of those things, you know, sometimes we don't realize that the, the, we're, what Tommy is doing by planning the service like he is, is exactly the way Scripture even presents the message of the Word of God. We have songs, we have, you know, uh, rhetorical effects, we have parables, we have the reading of things aloud, and the narratives, and all of these different styles that are all meant to reinforce force the central message of the Word of God. And so when we sing, we have to be careful because sometimes, you know, we can treat the singing part of our worship as just something that we just have to get through because this is what we've always done. There's always singing and then there's preaching. But these are things that are meant to reinforce the preached Word of God. So hopefully on your way home, You might even find yourself humming some of the songs that we have sung and reminding us of the things that the Word of God has been teaching us. So, Tommy, I appreciate your work and your effort there to make sure that the Word of God and the teaching of the Scriptures are reinforced. And so, we come to Matthew 26, really beginning in verse 31, which is the continuation of the narrative that began, really, from chapter 26 In the beginning, when Jesus announced that he was going to celebrate the last Passover feast with his disciples. And then, of course, we learned last week, Jesus not only celebrates that feast, but he reinterprets the feast. Interprets it in light of the symbols that instead of the bread now referring to the unleavened bread of the Exodus, it now refers to his body. And, of course, there's a long narrative about that in the Gospel of John, verse 6. And, of course, now we're going to learn a little bit more about the cup itself as the way Jesus describes this um, later on here in this text as well. So all of this is to help us continue the theme of the imagery of Christ as the Passover lamb. And a lot of what is about to unfold here, we, we have to keep the idea of the Lord's table, the symbols of bread and wine in the background and what those mean for even how we carry this forward, beginning in verses 31 through 46. 
all the way, I guess we could say, all the way even until, until the cross itself. Verse 30, we realize in Matthew 26 that the disciples, after singing a hymn, went out to the Mount of Olives. Probably it was very customary as a part of Jewish tradition that when the Passover meal was eaten, they would sing one of the, what was called the Hallel Psalms. Well, Psalms, any one of them could have been sung from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. And so after singing one of those psalms together, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives was, um, was necessary because during the Passover feast, it was, you were not allowed to leave the city of Jerusalem. You know, normally when Jesus would go to Jerusalem, he would travel outside the city, stay with Mary and Lazarus and their family, and he would go to Bethany. But Bethany was about two miles outside of town. So as a result of that, during the Passover feast, since they couldn't leave the city limits, they stayed in the Mount of Olives during this time frame. So after singing a hymn, they retreated and went out to the Mount of Olives. And from there, Jesus makes an astounding comment. He makes an astounding announcement that essentially it stuns the disciples. And so we pick up here in verse 31 of Matthew 26. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. Because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, but though everyone may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples were saying the same thing too. So Jesus, then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, basically meaning, meaning uh, oil press. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and he began to be grieved and distressed. And he even said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep alert with me. And so he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to his disciples and he found them sleeping and he said to Peter, So you men couldn't keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this, is, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and he went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. And then he came to the disciples and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. You know, verses 31 through 35 present to us a picture of two types of confidence. Confidence in the sense of certainty, certitude, assurance. 
But it's two types of confidence that are completely in conflict. The disciples are confident that they would never abandon Jesus. Jesus is confident they will abandon, is confident they, they will abandon him. Jesus predicts they will fall away upon his arrest and upon his death. And the disciples, you saw Peter's response there, even if I have to die, he says, I will never fall away. There's a lot of valuable lessons in this text that will help us in learning to live by grace and through faith. But what's interesting, too, is the poise that Jesus has all throughout this text that we just read, from here all the way to his crucifixion, we will learn and better understand how he was able to endure all of these things from his arrest to his trials to his crucifixion without his own falling away from being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus' announcement, as I mentioned to you, was it stunned the disciples. Jesus says in, there in 26 verse 2 that he was going to be handed over. He says here now in, in, in chapter 26 verse 31, he makes this announcement and says that upon his being handed over or being arrested, the disciples, the result of this is going to be that they will fall away. The King James Version says they will be offended. The New Living Translation says they will desert him. It's the same word that is used to speak of a stumbling block, scandalon. The idea is that they, they, will, they will trip up over what will happen to him. It will cause them to stumble in their walk. It will cause them to stumble in their commitment and in their following of the Lord Jesus but none of this should have been a surprise. Since the time that Jesus, Jesus was in Caesarea Philippi, in Matthew chapter 16, he had been warning the disciples of his forthcoming arrest and death and resurrection. You remember when Jesus made that, asked that question before all the disciples, who do the people say that I am? And then who do you say that I am? And then Peter cries out, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then immediately when Jesus begins to tell or predict his own death and resurrection, Peter's response is, this will never happen to you. And of course, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Why? Because Jesus recognized it, that Peter's, even though Peter was passionate about what he said and his protection of the Lord, Jesus saw it as temptation and an attempt by the evil one to thwart the mission of God. Because the greatest, because the mission and the greatest accomplishment in all of the ministry of Christ is the cross. It's the heartbeat of his mission, which is why we were singing about it. And of course, just before the Passion Week, what we commonly celebrate Palm Sunday, Jesus announced to the disciples again in chapter 20 that he would be handed over, delivered, crucified, and resurrected. So Jesus has warned his disciples over and over that this is the fate of what will happen to him upon his entrance into the city this third year of his ministry. But despite all of the warnings, when, and Jesus mentioning it again at the Last Supper, when Jesus was arrested and when he dies, it will come as such a shock, such a blow to their emotional gut that it will fill them with fear. And as a result of that, they will scatter and desert him. 
The disciples were led by Peter particularly, asserting their loyalty that it will never happen. They are offended that Jesus would even suggest to them that their loyalty to him was so thin. It bothered them to suggest that that they weren't deeply committed to him and would follow him all the way to the end. And what they don't understand is that what Jesus was telling them was foretold by the prophets and by the psalmist long before they were ever born. You see, our Lord quotes a very specific verse from the prophet Zechariah. It's a verse that speaks to exactly what will happen to him, exactly what will happen to his disciples, and what will even happen to them after his death. In fact, let me, let's put up here for a moment Zechariah chapter 13. I want to read this verse and read it in context for you so you can see what we're talking about. Here's what the prophet Zechariah spoke about beginning in verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against my man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones, and it will come about in all of the land declares the Lord, that two parts will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver, and test them as gold is tested, and they will call on my name, and I will answer them, and they will say, and I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. There's three things you should notice about that text that we just read in Zechariah. First, It is God who is announcing. It is God who is speaking, who declares he will strike the shepherd. Not what we would typically expect. But it is the Lord who is announcing that he will do the striking. He will kill the shepherd. And earlier in the prophet of Zechariah, the shepherd was one who was akin to David. He came from the root of Jesse. We understand this shepherd is to be a king who, like David, is reigning and ruling and leading over his people. And yet it is the Lord himself who will strike him. And in effect, the second thing we learn from that text in Zechariah is that by striking the shepherd, in effect, God's hand turns against the little ones, those who are the sheep, those who are weak and vulnerable, and they will scatter because their shepherd has died. But that scattering is momentary. Why? Because the third thing that that text in Zechariah showed us is that the striking of the shepherd resulted in that the striking of that shepherd, two-thirds of the land, two-thirds of the people who called themselves those who were a part or under the shepherd were offended and they deserted him. But the Lord raised up a third of those who were left and he refined them. He made them his people and they called him his God and he called them my people. So every bit of this was predicted by the prophet Zechariah. Everything from God striking of his own son, striking of the shepherd, the scattering of the sheep. But the result of that was that when these little, when these little sheep, when this little flock of this remnant who are still following the shepherd, when they come back, they won't be sheep. They will be as bold as lions. And it is proven by the fact that when Peter stands up in Acts chapter 2 and he preaches the word of God, and he boldly declares that Christ has died, Christ is raised, and 3,000 people give their lives to Christ in one day. 
Every bit of this they had to understand was shown and proven or predicted by the prophets. And by referencing the text from Zechariah, Jesus showed that his death, Jerusalem's downfall, and the, and the future emergence of the church's unquestionable loyalty to Christ was all in view by the prophets. Peter didn't understand this. He couldn't see it. He was enthusiastically attached to Jesus and he couldn't bear the idea out of his own emotion that he could ever be subject to desertion or to deserting him at that time. In the same context, the Gospel of Luke, Luke tells us that Simon, Jesus says to him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail you, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus, Peter's failure, his desertion, was but for a moment predicted exactly by the Lord Jesus and Peter was saved because the Lord Jesus prayed for him. The disciples, like the Jews in Jerusalem, they failed to understand the ministry of the shepherd. They failed to understand what the scriptures predicted. And this is what led them to rely, this is what led the disciples to rely on their emotions and on their flesh and, and not basing their confidence on the scriptures. That's the difference here. Jesus' confidence was based upon what the Word of God had taught. They had based their confidence based upon what their emotions told them, taught them. We can understand that. But their failure is a hard lesson learned. It's a, learn, it's a hard lesson learned about misplaced confidence. They were too self-reliant. They were trusting in their own enthusiastic emotions instead of realizing loyalty is only secure when it is found in the grace and the strength of God. And so as a result of this, you have two types of confidence, one that is self-reliant and another that is self-denying. You hear that? One level of confidence is based on self-reliance, and another level of confidence is based upon self-denial. <laughs> Two very different types of fruit will come out of that. Two very different kinds of fruit result when you have self-denial and self-reliance. And that is exactly what we will see even all the way to the cross in chapter 27. After Jesus makes that announcement Jesus instructs the disciples to stay and to pray with them. And he, he takes only Peter, James, and John with him. And he walks by to a nearby location. And we are told that he falls to his face and begins to have fervent prayer. But he also tells the disciples, you saw there, he tells them in verse 36, sit here while I go over there and pray. He also tells them, tells the, the, the Peter and the sons of Zebedee, that is James and John, to keep watch with me. And we begin to understand as the text unfolds that what Jesus is actually telling them to do is to keep watch. And how do you keep watch? It is through prayer. Because we gain a sense of that a little bit later in verse 41, that the prayer that Jesus is even commanding them to do in verse 41, he commands them to keep watching and praying, and it's all based upon 
so that they will not enter into the temptation to desert him. Jesus has warned them that that desertion, desertion is coming and has commanded them to pray to keep them, to prevent them from that. So Jesus is essentially, he's going back to the model prayer that he taught them back in Matthew 6, 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So we may not realize it here, but there are two temptations that are going on. The first one is that the disciples will be, a, will be tempted to abandon Jesus out of shock and fear. And the second one here is that Jesus is being tempted to back away from, his, from accomplishing his mission. Two different types of temptations that are in view in this text. Both the disciples and Jesus are being tempted. And so what we will learn in these following verses that in these two types of confidence that are on display, there are two very different results that ensue. The first thing I want us to do is I want us to learn a little bit about Matthew 26, 38, where Matthew describes Jesus, or Jesus describes himself as being in deep distress. And this helps us to begin by examining Jesus' temptation. He said to them in, in verse 38, my soul is deeply grieved, very sorrowful, the ESV will say, to the point of death, remain here and keep watch with me. The first, there are basically two questions that we want to ask is, why is Jesus grieved to the point of death? And the second thing that we want to ask here is in verse 39, what is meant by the cup that he refers to? Now, I'm not going to go through all the various proposals as to the reason, as to people's explanation as to why Jesus was deeply distressed or grieved, but I want you, to, I want to, because I want to make sure I have enough time to be able to explain that the, the distress was not because of Jesus' physical fear of the crucifixion. Jesus was not distressed. He was not trying to avoid the mission of God because he was cowering in the face of physical suffering. What we have to understand is that every bit of angst that the Lord Jesus had, every bit of physical emotional turmoil that he felt at this point. The deep distress that is being described here is all because not only is he a man, but he is fully divine. To understand Jesus' anguish and the deep distress is to think on the doctrine of all doctrines, the Holy Trinity. The 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 king of doctrines. It is impossible for us to grasp the depth of Jesus' distress without understanding the triunity of God and the relationship between the Father and the Son. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus existed in eternity in the glorious triune Godhead. And yet he was willingly humiliated by taking on human flesh to carry out this glorious yet distressing mission of bearing sin. Listen, you've you got to hang with me through this. I don't care if you ignore everything else I say, but at least hang with me on this, okay? I want you to grasp this for a moment. As fully God, Jesus is a stranger to sin. Jesus, as the Son, is a stranger to death. 
Jesus does not know what it means to bear the wrath or to bear the judgment of God. He only knows of God the Father and the Spirit in holy communion and fellowship. He's the very spotless lamb, the perfect image of God, the one who made all things, the one who shares this intimate communion and fellowship within the Godhead. And yet he is about to experience what had never been experienced before in all of eternity, alienation from the Father. For the first time in all of eternity, He who was very God of God was about to experience alienation from the one he calls Father. One commentator noted that Jesus confronted a loneliness that no other man could experience. The Son of God who communed with the Father and the Holy Spirit would find himself forsaken by his Father as he became sin. It's hard for us to grasp that, but Jesus faced a crisis that none of us could fathom because we were born separated from God, but he was not. We were separated because of our sins, but Jesus existed in perfect fellowship, perfect love, perfect communion with the Father. And now he faces the reality that the one who is who has only known this kind of perfect fellowship is about to be separated not because of his sins but because of our sins you hear that the very man who is of, who is god perfect in every way without sin and without disobedience is about to take upon himself the death that is due for a sinner. That's why we sing about the cross. That's why we rejoice in the accomplished work of Christ. That is why Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be a sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He knew no sin. But he became sin. He took upon himself and died the death that sinners die, even though he never knew sin. So everyone who believes on him will share in his righteousness. Jesus Jesus was not distressed over physical suffering, but he was distressed on the grim crisis that he was about to experience judgment for sins he never committed. Luke tells us that Jesus was in such agony over what he faced that his sweat drops became his sweat became like drops of blood that the capillaries dilated on his, beneath his skin and they were bursting and mixing his blood with his sweat why well we get a little bit more into this we understand he Jesus talks about in his prayer with the father in verse 39 he begins to speak about the cup what is this cup In verse 39, what is this cup that he wants the Father to see if it's possible that it could pass from him? Well, the cup is interesting because it's used throughout the it's used in many places throughout the Old Testament. And then throughout the Old Testament, the cup most often symbolizes the judgment of God against sin. There's a whole long study on that, and I would encourage you to we'll 
Come see me afterwards if you're interested in knowing more about it, but there's no way I can get into it right now. But the, what we need to understand is that the cup is often, symbolically, it represents the judgment of God against sin and against his enemies. And that is why the cup bears such great significance in the Gospels. So when Jesus prays, we realize his anguish The feeling of his anguish is all because he understands that the weight of the Father's anger is going to be against him. Think about that. He who is from God is about to experience the wrath of God. And yet he committed no sin. The psalmist and the prophet spoke about God's judgment as the cup of his wrath. It's the cup of judgment. It is the cup that all of God's enemies will be forced to drink at the end of the age. It's what John refers to in Revelation 16, 19 as the cup of wine of the fierce wrath of God. And since Jesus is dying a death for sin, it means that we must, he must now do the unimaginable and drink the cup of divine wrath that's reserved for the enemies of God. You and I deserve that cup of God's wrath. And everyone who does not have genuine faith in the Lord Jesus will one day drink that cup of wrath. But for everyone who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus is about to drink the cup of God's anger on their behalf. It's astounding, isn't it? He has never known anything but love in the Godhead. He's never known anything but holy, uninterrupted fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. He's never known iniquity. He's never known sin. He's never trespassed the law of God. In fact, he authored the law of God. And now he's about to drink the anger of God due to those who break God's law. He used to take on the curses of the covenant upon himself. That is why Jesus was in deep distress. That is why we should be overwhelmed and flooded with thanksgiving and deep affection for Jesus because every time we see the cross and every time we hear the cross preached, it should humble us and cause us to reflect on the depth of our sin, the wretchedness of our iniquities, and the glorious work that only the God-man Jesus Christ could have accomplished. Isaac Watts wrote, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died. My richest gain I count but loss, and I pour contempt on all my pride. Where is pride? Where is boasting? Where is room for self-confidence? When we look at the cross. But before leaving this thought, I want to also give you this, that we should also notice something else, that not only was Jesus about to experience the crushing blow of being alienated from the Father, but he was also going to experience abandonment by his companions. The disciples would desert him. The shepherd will be struck, the sheep will scatter, and Jesus faces this death completely alone. You know, it would do well for our souls to prayerfully meditate on the sacrifice of Christ for our sins. Do well for us to stop and just reflect on the cost. 
Well, Jesus and the disciples relied on two very different sources for their strength. And the disciples were confident they would never desert Jesus. And that confidence was rooted in that emotion and flesh that we talked about earlier, but they didn't understand how critical it was for them to be alert and reliant upon the Lord for their strength. Three times Jesus finds them sleeping instead of praying because they did not think. This is what's important for us. They didn't think they were capable of committing that sin. Anything was possible that someone they spent three years with and loved so much that they could all of a sudden up and abandon him when all of a sudden they, you know, upon his arrest. So they didn't feel the pressure to pray. And so when the arresting parties showed up, they were caught unprepared and they fell straight into the trap that Jesus warned them about. You know, when we focus on the word of Jesus' deep distress, it's also helpful to note that that word is very intentional because it's meant to draw our attention back to the Psalms. The use of that word that Jesus has is related back to Psalm chapter 42 and chapter 43 because in Psalm 42, it describes a a situation where the psalmist is in deep despair and deep distress, facing trials and oppression and persecution, and the psalmist repeatedly asks himself, he he inquires of his own soul and says, why are you in despair? He, the psalmist challenges his own attitude of the, his own, the attitude of his own heart by remembering that hope is not lost. Why? Because God is there. In Psalm 42, 5, he says, Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the, for the help of his presence. In verse 11, he asks again, why are you in despair, O my soul? That word despair is the same word that describes Jesus' distress in the garden. And why have you become disturbed? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. The psalmist, in the face of great despair, recalls that his only source of hope and health is in the strength of God. And that is why our Lord Jesus was able to accomplish the mission of the cross, because his confidence was not in his flesh. His confidence was on the strength and the will and the word of God. He appeals to that. And so when we see the prayer of our Lord Jesus addressed to the Father, His confidence is in the Father's will, and you can see that increase every time. The first time there, and Jesus says in verse 39, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But by the time you get to verse 42, you'll notice he says, if this this potential is not there unless I drink it, your will be done. Every time the Lord Jesus went back to prayer, he became more resolved to just accomplish the will of God. You know, when we scan back to the disciples, there's uh, some patterns that emerge. In fact, I don't know if you noticed this, but did did you notice the number three would show up quite a bit, right? In fact, you'll notice that there's patterns of three that emerge from here and throughout the rest of the narratives in the book of Matthew. And we won't go through all of those. We'll pick up on some of those later on. But for, for our text here, I want you to notice that there are patterns of three that emerge. Now, three is significant in the Bible because what happens is when something is, happens three times, it rules out that those acts or those incidents are by any chance coincidence or happenstance. 
So a lot of times we'll find in Scripture things will happen in groups of three in order to reinforce the understanding that these are from the Lord. These are not coincidental. These are not accidental. And so as a result here, you have three things. You notice, you remember in chapter 26, verse 34, Peter tells Jesus he will never fall away. And Jesus says, before sunrise, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Second of all, we'll find that when Jesus came back in, verses, in verse 44, he came back the third time and found the disciples sleeping. And we won't have time to get there today, but another part of that is verses 69 through 75 when Peter denies the Lord Jesus three times in the courtyard of Caiaphas' house. It's interesting, the first time Jesus left the disciples to pray, Matthew tells us in chapter 26, verse 40, he came and he found them sleeping. And I love Jesus' question to them because it speaks both to the irony of the situation and very telling about what's going to happen. He says, so you could not keep watch with me for one hour. The word could comes from a Greek word that is used for things like strength or ability or power. So he says, essentially, I guess you, you, could, you could translate this, so you're not strong enough to keep alert with me for one hour? You're the one who just said, I, no matter what happens, I will never desert you. I'll never forsake you. I'll die with you. And yet you can't even hang with me for one hour. But it's interesting because the word Jesus uses there pointedly shows that they were relying on their own strength, their own ability. You see, they didn't think it was possible. If I were to ask you right now, how many of you, going to re how many of you would just re would reject Jesus? Probably most of us would go, oh, I would never do that. I mean, that, that would, you know, now after hearing the sermon, we might go, well, I better be careful what I say now, right? Um, but look, I mean, but, but think about it. I mean, there are th questions that could be asked to us that we would go, I would never do something like that. You know why? Because we're too confident in ourselves. And it was that kind of thinking is exactly what got the disciples in trouble. Heard a guy one time say that he was studying seminary and it was a, a professor that asked him the question in a class. He, he spoke about, a pastor that had fallen into adultery and essentially had lost his ministry and his marriage and life in so many ways. And his, question, and his response to all of them said, and if any of you think I would never do that, you're the first one who will fall. We underestimate the power of our flesh. Jesus was causing them to remember their earlier enthusiasm and commitment to die with him and never desert him and proves that they are incapable of even keeping alert with him for one hour. What about you this morning? If you were to put your prayer life and your level of spiritual alertness on a scale of 1 to 10, how do you, how do you think you would score? You know, if we really spent some time in prayer and asking the Lord to search our hearts, we may find that we have more in common with the disciples at this stage than we realize. You know, the, the, the text here exposes the danger of self-reliance and self-confidence. 
Tim Lane and Paul Tripp in their book, How People Change, make this helpful observation. He says, it's hard for us to embrace how weak and blind and vulnerable sin actually makes us. We don't like to think that we need wisdom and correction daily. We prefer the lie of our own self-sufficiency. Sure, we can recognize the blind and the foolishness in others, but we like to think we are the exception to the rule. You know, a good way to test ourselves is to ask ourselves the question, how willing are we to be corrected? Are we willing to take correction from the preached word? Are we willing to take correction from our brothers and sisters in Christ? Are we willing to take correction from God's word and deep prayer when he exposes the sin in our hearts. You know, a good way to test your level of self-reliance is how you is how you respond when you are convicted or approached about sin. Christian maturity is more than Bible knowledge. It's more than theological knowledge. Some of the most knowledgeable, knowledgeable people that I know about the Bible, that when you confront them about their sin, they immediately become defensive because it's rooted in their own self-righteousness. Listen, in the church, we typically have two camps of people, and both of those are here in this text, by the way. In the church, we typically have two different camps. One who is regular in their religious life and living in their own strength, and another who is lethargic and simply has no desire for prayer and spiritual maturity. Those are the two ends that we have. We have churches who are full of self-reliant, spiritually drowsy people. And a lack of prayer in your life is an admission to God that you can handle it yourself. You heard what I just said? A lack of prayer in our lives is essentially telling God, I got it myself. Listen. Jesus has given us an example of the will of God and how to, and really, how to live in the will of God and how to battle temptation. The Lord Jesus faced the greatest fear of all eternity by prayer. He was tempted to look for another way to accomplish redemption outside of his death, but when he was tempted to find glory in some other way than the will of the Father, he was tempted in his weakness, but he relied on the Father for grace to carry out his mission. He is an example of doing the will of God, and the disciples are an example of abandoning our Lord to show us how weak we are, how frail our loyalties are, how fragile we are, and why we are so desperately dependent on the strength of God. And the last thing I'll point you to is something that really struck me, and even in our, our Sunday school lesson, is that in talking about the prophet Habakkuk, is that we not only depend upon the Lord when we face temptation, but also when we face moments of despair in our lives. There are times in our lives where we will face events that will shock us, just as, as the disciples were shocked. We will, there'll be times in our life when we will face events that will hurt us and bring great anxiety. But too often, we could be like the disciples 
and ignoring the warnings that are surrounding us even right now. You know, sometimes, unfortunately, people wait until they face a tragedy to try to figure out what their theology is in that moment. And I just want to warn you about something. It's a wrong time to try to figure it out. It's about the equivalent of a squirrel starting in January to gather nuts. That's about how reliable it is, unless you're in Florida. Yeah. Just saying. Anyway. So, listen. The point I'm saying to you is that a lot of times people get themselves in a mess. You know why? Because they don't think about the times before the crisis happens, what their theology is, and then they try to get in the middle of the crisis and ask the question, well, I don't understand what God is doing. And you know what happens? A lot of times they get derailed in their faith because they were unprepared. And all the while, the Bible is reaching out to us and telling us, get prepared now. You don't, you know why? Because our ears become dull, we become hard-headed, and we don't listen very well. We're in the midst of the crisis. And being in the midst of it is not the time to figure out what the Bible is teaching. Now, the Lord will teach us, but you're better prepared for it, depending on how your prayer life is. And reaching out now in the scriptures and in prayer and asking yourself the question, if I have a job loss, how am I going to handle that? If, if my child dies, if my spouse dies, how am I going to handle that? If I lose everything, how am I going to handle that? If I get a disease, how am I going to handle that? If I get a terminal illness, how am I going to handle that? If I get coronavirus, how am I going to handle that, right? Whatever it is. Ask those questions in prayer now. Ask those questions by the Scriptures now. Don't wait until it's then. Because it will be like that moment for the disciples. One day you will get shocking news. And there will be a question, are you prepared for it? Better to know your theological and biblical commitments now. And you'll know how to answer those questions better when it does happen. So, Father, give us wisdom, and God, give us grace to help us realize, Lord, the foolishness of trying to rely upon ourselves and our own strength. Instead, Lord, help us to realize that our only way of success and victory over trials and temptations is when we are completely reliant upon you. Father, our only... Our only way of being able to be victorious in conquering sin and patterns of sin in our life and, and even just and even overcoming anxieties and distresses and all of these things, Lord, is when we are humble before you, relying upon you for everything. God, help us to remember the words of our brother Paul, that it is in you that we live and breathe and move and have our very being. We are nothing apart from you. Lord Jesus, you told the disciples in John 15 that apart from you, we can do nothing. And so, Lord, help us to remember that. Lord, help us to be on guard against pride. Lord, help us to be on guard against self-reliance. Remembering, Lord Jesus, that you accomplished the greatest mission ever known to any human being, but you never did it relying on yourself. You did it by the strength of the Father. Help us, Lord, to follow your example, remember your example, and be faithful in all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to this message from Covenant Baptist Church in Valdosta, Georgia. At Covenant, we strive to provide a fellowship that is sound in doctrine, biblical in practice, and loving in our relationship with each other and the community. For more from our elders and teachers, please visit us at covenantbapt.org. That's covenantbapt.org for teachings, articles, and more information about our community.